I like that. That's good stuff. Well, go and say hello to a few people before you sit down. Be fantastic. Amen. Oh, that's right. Give him a hug. That's right. Oh, there. Fantastic. Great to have everyone here. Whoa, I wonder if anyone can tell me what the greatest commandment is. Come on, someone knows. Anyone give it to me? Come on. Anyone know? The greatest one. Okay, when you say what's the greatest commandment, the first commandment, yes? Very good. I lip read you from there. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Is that sound passionate or not? Doesn't say you love the Lord your God when it suits. And you won't do it with your hands and your feet or the rest of your body. You'll just do it quietly in your heart. He says you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. That is passionate love. Passionate love. How many know that passion is visible? If someone's passionate, you can see it in their countenance. Eh? If someone is passionate, how many know you can feel it? Eh? And, but if someone has got apathy on them, how many know you can see that as well? If someone's got apathy on them, how, how many know you can feel it as well? It kind of invades the atmosphere around them. Now, when a person's got apathy all over their life, what you find when you're with them is you find yourself drained. And the longer you're with them, either you prevail with your passion or they prevail with their apathy, but something prevails. Think what that is. Either you walk away and you're being drained out and you're no energy and you're flat, or they walk out and they're challenged deeply by your passion and your life and your vitality. If someone is passionate and you spend time with them, they begin to stir up something inside you. You begin to feel yourself igniting on the inside. You go away and you're energized. So, you see, small groups in a church are meant, their purpose is to fellowship. It's to build people who are passionate followers with Christ. Now, of course, if... There's 10 people in the group and nine of them, except for the leader, are covered in apathy. Guess what the group will be like? Well, unless there's a mighty strong leader, he'll be coming back next week saying, I don't feel to continue leading a small group. Not even knowing what's happened, that a spirit came against him and cancelled him. You know, in the movie, well, cancel means you're out of the race. You know, they shot you and all be cancelled. God's called you to do something, you never want to be cancelled by someone's apathy. Right? So that's why we're on about passion for the moment. I want to speak today about God's passionate love. We've been talking about igniting passion in our own lives, but one of the key things I shared about igniting passion in your life, you've got to get near the fire. Stay near the fire. Now, our God is a passionate God. See, a lot of people have got wrong concepts with God. If you've got a wrong concept of God, you'll relate to Him in a funny, weird way. You will relate to him according to how you see him. So if you've reduced God from what he's like and you've got some kind of other little thing that's made in the image of man, then what will happen is you will worship that and you won't connect with and relate to the invisible, true, one living God. So one of the problems they had in the book of Exodus is they made an image of God instead of worshiping the living God. Now, the image they made was just an image of a calf, and that was like the rest of the world had. Now, the world and the TV media paint the church as being sort of passive and apathetic, and God is sort of an old gentleman up there who's just disinterested in everything. Now, if you buy into that, well, of course, you'll have an old God up in there. He's not interested in your life or nothing. And see, that's what happened to the Israelites. They made an image and then worshipped the image and changed the glory of their God to something that wasn't like him at all. You have to understand our God is deeply passionate. Our God is not apathetic in any way. His passion is expressed in his creation, the diversity of it, the colors of it, the amazing variety in it. 
When you see Jesus, Jesus came to represent and to show us what God is like. Now, of course, most of the TV programs you see Jesus or anywhere where they do a representation of them, the people who did it mostly don't really know what he's like. So they come up with their idea about what he's like. The only way you can really know what he's like is to get into the Word of God and let the Spirit of God show you this great, awesome, mighty, powerful God we serve. This Jesus we serve is a passionate person. His passion showed up in three different ways. Number one, his passion showed up in the ability to express his emotions. Aha. Ain't seen anyone passionate yet who was quiet about it. Is that true or what? He wept openly in front of people. He was joyful. He became angry. This is passion. This is passion. He grieved. He sorrowed. The Bible says he sang. When he prayed, he prayed strong prayers with strong utterances to God. He was a very passionate man. So don't let us whittle God down and form a little God in our own image and say that that's what our Jesus is like. If you serve a God who's like that, you'll become like that. But the God we serve is passionate, full of fire. Listen, Revelations chapter 1 verse 14. When John saw Jesus, it tells a number of things about him. But look, this is what it says that he was like. It says his eyes were like a flaming fire. That's passion. That word is like, they were like shafts of lightning went out of his eyes. Now that's got to be passion. Because the eyes are the window of the soul. So you get a person who's passionate, whoo, you see it in their eyes. You get a person who's no passion, they're full of apathy, you see that in their eyes too. There's a deadness around the eyes. The eyes tell it all. Don't they? So we close our eyes so no one can see us. <laughs> see? So, you see, so he was passionate. He expressed his passion in a variety of ways. When he went into the temple, he expressed his passion very strongly. So why wouldn't you, who are called to be in the image of this Jesus Christ, be a passionate person as well? Passionate about him, passionate about his cause, passionate about life and living life. Don't buy into a doctrine that Jesus somehow going to just whip you out of it all. He's placed you here to make a difference in it all. So get passionate about what he's passionate about. He is definitely passionate about our city and region. Extremely passionate. And talk about our passionate God shortly. We'll get into some of it. So one way he shows his passion is he expresses it through his emotions, through his words, his countenance, the way he looks, and through the feelings that are, that are associated with that. You don't always tell passionate people. I love passionate people. People that aren't passionate, you've got a clue what's going on inside them. They say they're passionate, but we're not sure because we can't see it. It must be very deep. I don't want my passion to be very deep. I want the passion to be up on the top. I mean, a lot of marriages are struggling because the husband says he's very passionately in love with his wife, but it's very deep, you know, you don't see any of it. She's left thinking, well, I wonder when I'm going to see some of this passion. It was there before we got married. But what has happened to the passion and the fire? The another way that Jesus' passion was expressed was in his strength to stand up in life. That's how passion can be expressed as well. It's not all emotions, actually strength. He confronted sin. He stood up against what was wrong. He stood up primarily against religious things that stole and misrepresented what God was like. Ooh. That one. He was strong. Passion is expressed not just with passionate emotions and feelings, it's expressed in strong commitments. A person who's passionate about their business will make strong commitments to focus on it and not be taken off course. Jesus maintained his focus. That's passion, does that. He, he was able to say no to people. That's passion, does that to you. He was able to confront things. Passion does that. Say, so what? We want to be a passionate person. See, most, most people, if I talk about the word passion, you think, well, it's someone else. But if we're being called to be conformed in the image of Jesus Christ, then passion will be part of our life. 
If there's no passion, something is wrong. <laughs> okay, so here's another way passion is experienced. Eh? Another way passion is experienced is through tenderness in handling people. Passion is expressed in tenderness in handling people. Think about how Jesus handled people. Most people, I tell them when they don't get their bad concepts of God, tell them, read the Bible and see how Jesus touched people. Jesus touched unlovable people. The woman at the well, who everyone rejected her, a broken life, she'd failed. She failed five times in marriage. Now she's living with a guy. She's ostracized by the communion. A total, what you call a total, total reject. Jesus reached out to her. That's passion. Passion for people. God is passionate about people. In fact, he's passionate about you. He's passionate about you. Tell someone next to you, God's passionate about you. He's on fire with love for you. Hey? He's on fire with love for you. Hey, believe it. You are God's passion. He is passionate about you. He's not passionate about the world we live in. He's not passionate about the things we can see and touch. He's passionate about the high point of his creation, which is mankind, the only part of his creation made in his likeness that can have relationship and be intimate with him. He's passionate about that because he wants that. He made you for relationship. He made you to become part of a family that would be intimate with him and be a lover of God. That's why the first commandment, love God passionately. Say, say love God passionately, extravagantly. Give your very best. That's, why, that's one of the reasons we do what we do in a meeting. But that's not where our love for God stops. It's got to go beyond there and right out to the way we run our lives. Eh? So God is passionate about you. He's passionate. He's extravagant, generous. You say, well, he didn't be generous to me. Well, yeah, but you've got to learn to receive it. You've got to learn how to receive it. See? Everything of God is received by faith. We have to believe it. But if we believe that, if you see, if our concept of God is wrong, and we see God as being un, distant and remote, and, and he's not interested in me, and somehow he never answers my prayers, all of that's fueled by unresolved conflict in the heart, the heart's full of lies. It says, you're no good, you're no value. The devil gets on your back and pushes you down. You know, you're no good, you're no value. You know, you're unlovable, you know. You never do anything right. You're always blowing it. You got that stuff talking to you? And you got a picture of God way out there? You won't receive his passion. To receive his passion, I've got to align my inner life to receive from him. I've got to be a responder to God. Say, he loves us. He loves us. Not because he's wanting something out of us. He loves us. Not because he has to. He loves us because he loves people. He loves you. You are special to God. There's no one you've ever looked at that's not special to God. We find that hard to understand. We live in a world where love is conditional. So we think that's what God's like. So then we try and work to get God's love instead of learning how to just dwell in his presence and receive it. That's why we're taking a little more time in the meetings to just let you to still and to worship. Some have already sat down, switched off, and are gone a long time. Takes a little time for the soul to respond to lovemaking. Now all the women say amen. Look at me like I'm crazy. I, you know what I'm talking about. Might be able to turn a man on and off with just a picture, but you can't do that with a woman. Men might think you can, but you can't. Anyone who knows anything and be married a little while know the romance. They have the emotions and the love and the tenderness and the atmosphere. Then, oh. Why would we think it's different with us and God? He's the initiator. We're the responder. So that means we respond to God's love like a woman to a man. It takes time for us to flow and open our heart and engage him. Think about that. Of course, the women all know what I'm talking about. The men. Mm. Hey, I'm ready. Come on. It's not how it is. Sit down with your wife and ask her. She'll tell you. Provided she can be assured you're not going to interrupt. Because there'll be about 15 minutes or at least of talk she'll have to tell you about how, about how you need to learn how to love her. Say, Come on. 
romance and candles and meals and outings and holding hands and nice words. You bring words, you know. <laughs> all those things. The men all kind of got passion in their eyes before they get married, and so I don't know what happens to it. Dies out, you know, got another project. Come on, we need to get focused on loving God passionately. So it takes a little time to warm up. That's why you, know, you come in and we, we have a time to engage God. Well, if you're already warmed up before you came, this wouldn't be so hard. Okay. Wouldn't be so hard. But, you know, if everyone comes in and you haven't prayed and you haven't had time with God and you haven't kept your heart clean from all the defilements and you're coming in and spiritually speaking, you're flat, you're cold and you've got B.O., then it's not going to be a turn on, you know. You've got to have the atmosphere right, eh? Atmosphere is important for God communicating, connecting with God. And sometimes it takes a little while for your heart to respond when your heart's gone other places. Okay, so God is passionate about you. So now, he's the male. He's always ready. Talk about loving. Count him in. He's ready to love on you anytime. The problem is we're, we're all over the place. Any, any family where now you've got two or three kids in the home. And then the man comes to me all day thinking about what might happen when he gets home. And he finally gets home, what he hasn't been understanding at all. And she's had two kids sick and there's been messes and the phone's been going and something burnt over here. And then he gets home, oh, he's all ready for love. <laughs> Don't even mention it. She's had a different life, you know. And have to take a bit of romance to get that one right. Okay then, so Jesus, now notice this. Jesus, so God, you're God's passion. God's passionate about you. Here's the second thing about that. Here's the second thing. is Jesus is the friend of sinners. Now, that's a hard thing for people to get a hold of. Hard thing for people who have been in church for a while. Because we think that Jesus is the friend of good people. That's true. In Luke 7 and verse 39, when the Simon the Pharisee, the, remember the religious ones, when we look at the picture and we listen to the story about the, the woman with the alabaster box, we never position ourselves where Simon is. We uh, wouldn't even enter our mind. We might be like him. But just for a moment now, suppose, just suppose that Simon the Pharisee was you. And you've invited Jesus in. Of course you have. You're such a wonderful church person. You've asked Jesus to come. And then in the middle of your specially controlled, organized welcome, there's this tart from down the road. Still got the night stuff on. You can tell that hooker's a hooker. And here she comes wandering into your nice, orderly setup for Jesus, and then just stands at his feet, crying and doing stuff. Weeping and weeping, messing her hair up and washing her hair all over, and then breaking that box and all that sweet, sickly stuff is all in the air. You'd probably think just exactly what he thought too. Well, some prophet Jesus is, doesn't he know that woman's a sinner? Don't you know who she is or what she does? Now, that's his thinking. But behind the thinking was this. Behind the thinking is that God doesn't love people like that. God loves people like us. But too long the church has been like Simon the Pharisee. Don't you know, Jesus, what kind of person that one is? And in case Jesus doesn't know, we'll tell everyone what kind of person that person is just to make sure that Jesus somehow listens in and gets to hear. And so we begin to talk, run down people. It comes out of a proud, judgmental heart that's forgotten that this everyone is a sinner and everyone comes to God the same way. There's no rich and no poor get into heaven. There's only those who come in by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, it didn't matter whether you were rich or whether you were poor, you had to present the same piece of money in order to be redeemed or to have the price of redemption paid. The same price for everyone, rich and poor, the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses what? Cleanses sin, cleanses our failures, our mistakes, the things we've done wrong, the hurts, the disappointments, the defilements, the things that have got into our life that have cluttered us up. Jesus is definitely the friend of sinners. He loves sinners. You know what? In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, it says, they said of Jesus, this man 
welcomes sinners and even puts on a meal for them. And they couldn't understand that. A lot of people in church can't understand Jesus healing unsaved people either. I've been in lots of meetings and seen cripples walk and seen the Christians go home sick. Because he's definitely a friend of the sinner. He's definitely a friend of the sinner. But those who say they have no sin don't need the physician. Those who know they're sinners. Those who know that day after day, every day, we sin and we fail and we make mistakes. And we come to Jesus the same way every day, via the cross, by the blood that was shed for us. For there's no other way to come. We come to him by the blood. Now, you only come by the blood because you know that you've goofed up. You know that you've failed. You know your words haven't been right. Your actions haven't been right. There's been a sharpness. There's been a selfishness. There's been a flood of all kinds of things that's been around our soul and our life. And when we come near to God, we come according to the way he said to come, with blood. No access to the presence of God without blood. No access to the presence of God without blood. And that means that you and I must acknowledge that we have sin in our life. That there are things that aren't right. And the blood is God's provision. And we come presenting that blood so we can actually access his presence. But you see what happens is, and see, the lukewarm church in Revelation 3, here's what the lukewarm church said. I have no need of anything. See, one of the sure signs that we're disconnected from God is we get to the point where we think, I don't really need anything. I'm full. But godly people are hungry for more all the time. More of God. More of Him. More of Him. We've got to sustain that hunger, sustain that passion. See? So here's, 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 here's the third thing about it, you are God's passion. Jesus continually communicated, you are of value to me. And, and virtually he's saying, Everywhere he went, he communicated a consistent message to people. You are of great personal value to God. You are. You are. You may not think you are. People said you're nothing, but God says you're of great value to me. God says you're of immense value to me. There's no one like you. I've made you uniquely. I put seeds of destiny in your heart. I have a plan of how your life will go, of things for you to accomplish. You're not here for nothing. You're here. There's a plan I have in place, and all I want you to do is connect with me, receive my love, and begin to align your life to fulfill my plan. You'll know fulfillment. See? See, Jesus is passionate about you. Now, look, uh, we, we have a look at how Jesus handled people. Let me give you a couple of examples. There was a leper came to Jesus. Now, what did the leper need? The leper needed healing. And so he came asking for healing. And Jesus didn't just heal. He did something else because he loves and values people. He looked into that poor, wretched leper's soul. And he saw that for all those years he'd had leprosy, he'd been unable to touch any person or be touched by any person. And Jesus went the second mile. He didn't just heal him and, uh, and, and get rid of that sickness. He put his hand on him and touched him. And there's a lot of us need that. It's not just the forgiveness of our sin. We need to feel the love and the touch of God. We need to feel his embrace. People who are broken, people who are damaged, they need more than just to be forgiven. They need to be welcomed and embraced and celebrated and to feel, I am special. This is the nature of people. We all want to know we're special. How on earth are we going to find it? One, God tells us. Two, people in the body of Christ communicate it. That's how you find it. We need to know we're special. There's another woman, and the woman, you know the story, in, in Luke, I think chapter 5, she pushed through the crowd. She had an issue of blood. She touched the hem of Jesus' garment and immediately healed. And Jesus stopped the crowd and said, who touched me? And that poor woman, now I'll tell you, she was terrified. You know why she was terrified? Because the sickness she'd had of the bleeding made her unclean. And according to the Bible and the culture in those times, you could not touch any person. And she's just pushed her way through the crowd and touched everyone. And you see, not only did she have a sickness, but in her soul, there's a loneliness and emptiness. She doesn't just need a physical sickness. She needs more than that. She needs to actually be restored into community, to be restored into human relationships in God's family. So Jesus hooked her out and made her tell the whole story. In front of everyone, she confessed her situation. 
And then she was reconnected with everyone. An amazing God we serve. See, you're of great value to God. Trouble is we don't, we, we have a dearth of the love of God in our hearts, so therefore we don't know how to love people either. We've got to learn how to receive the love of God. God is passionate in his love for you. So we need to learn how to receive it. The Bible says be rooted and grounded in the love of God. Now the love of God is not just a little word you find in the Bible. Good gosh, I love the world. Listen, it's action. God did something to demonstrate his love. He continues to do something. And it's possible for you in a time of prayer, worship, to connect with him and to feel him reach into you and touch you and embrace you and welcome you. And the pain and the rejection and the grief dissipates out of your soul as you feel for the first time you're loved and a value. That's what he's on about. And of course, it needs to happen not just in our prayer time. It needs to happen Throughout the church body. The reason it doesn't happen so, so well as it ought to. does happen but not as well as it ought to. It's because we're very damaged. And we need to receive God's love for ourselves. We need to become more vulnerable about what we are. Jesus made the woman say. This was my condition. And now she's become vulnerable. And immediately she's welcomed and embraced. See what a wonderful God. He values people. Values people. Can Jesus consistently communicated how valuable people are. Maybe you've never had anyone communicate you're valuable. You know, we have a tradition in our family of, of at least sometimes in the year of communicating value to people. Should be done more regularly, of course. We should be doing it continually that people are of value. We know they're of value because of what Jesus did for them. Because of his passion and extravagant love and what he did to demonstrate that love. That brings us to the cross. Okay, now let's get to the cross. The cross is God's passionate love in action. John, 1, uh, John 15 verse 13. Greater love has no man than he lays down his life for his friends. Now remember, Jesus is the friend of sinner. So if you're a sinner, you qualify to be a friend. Isn't that good news? Eh? If you're a sinner, you qualify. Of course, if you're not a sinner, then you don't need him. You don't qualify. So if you want Jesus' friendship, you've got to admit where we are. Eh? And so at the cross, the cross, a number of things, of course, there's a lot we can preach on. Let me just share just a couple of simple things about the cross. The cross practically and historically is a demonstration of how passionately God loves people. He withheld nothing, not only his own son, he gave him. We would hardly give 20 bucks. We think we're, we've overdone it. But to give everything, to give what's most precious to you, to surrender it up, that's passionate, extravagant love. Second thing about the cross is it demonstrates God's nature, which is generous and extravagant in giving. We need to get a revelation of that. Not just giving so we get something back, but giving because that's who we are. Your spirit Man, united with Christ, takes on the nature of God. You're a giver. But the rest of your mind needs to catch up with the news. It needs to be reinforced that we are generous people. Generosity is a sure sign of passions. Eh? The, gen the cross is the foundation of a relationship with God. We can't have a relationship with God except because of what God has done for us. At the cross, God said, I love people. But the trouble is, if I, I want to enter into covenant relationship with them, the trouble is they forever don't keep their promises. They forever blow it. What on earth can I do to come up with a strategy that will enable me to enter into a covenant marriage with people? How can I do it? Because God doesn't want a de facto relationship where you shack up, try it out, and then leave. That is defiling and dishonoring to any woman caught in that kind of thing. That is not God's intention. God's intention is a lifelong covenant relationship because he's a covenant God. So when God enters into a relationship with you, he doesn't enter in with a de facto. We'll try it and see how it goes. If we don't like it, well, we'll go off. What kind of deal is that? What kind of God do you serve? It's not the God we serve, not the God I serve. He's not like that. He's a covenant God. So because mankind was renowned for being unfaithful, how many have made promises you never kept your promise? You did, said you're going to do something, never got to do it. See, we're renowned for it. Eh? The rest of the ones, see, all these ones, are category, you're good. the ones who put your hand up, you're, you're in the category of the, the ones that Jesus calls, he's a friend of the sinners, he's a friend of those ones. 
the other one's still got a bit of trouble with you, okay? Right there. So, so think about this. So what God did was God sent his only son to take on human nature. God and man said, I know Jesus will be faithful. He will keep the covenant. He will serve me and love me and obey me in the earth. And I will have a man who will keep covenant with me. So when Jesus went to the cross, he did more than just die for our sins and provide a legal way for us to be free. As God in man, as a man, as the son of man, he lived a faithful life, laying his life down, offering his own blood, and he then became a participant in covenant with God. God initiated, God provided the one to respond. What a deal. You say, well, where does that leave us? Needing to love Jesus and trust him passionately. See, all religions in the world want to bypass that deal. But if there was a way into heaven without the blood of Jesus, he would never have had to die. There is no way into heaven. All your friends who have no relationship with Jesus have no guarantee of eternal life. They do have a guarantee of a life without God for eternity. There is only one way into heaven through the passionate blood that was shed at Calvary. Now, that blood has done many, many things for us. Let me just give you a couple of things the blood has done. It's amazing what God has done for us. Now, if you, if you know what's in the deal, in the contract, then you can actually start to get the benefits of the contract. If someone's got a contract with you and you don't know what your privileges are, you probably won't ask for them. So you have to understand. And so those that fear God, he shows his covenant with them. Here's what he did. Number one, he became sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin who knew no sin, so we could be the righteousness of God. In other words, God made an exchange. Christ took our sin, we get his righteousness if we will repent, confess, and lean on what he's done. God says, you're righteous, you're righteous, you're righteous, you're righteous. You have the righteousness of Christ, not your own works, not trying to be a good boy, not trying to be a good Christian. You are right because you received the rightness of God when you received Christ. Therefore, you have right to access God. Second thing Jesus did, he became a curse for us. Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree so we can become blessed. So what a deal. Before I lived under cursing, sweating, striving, struggling, things going against me. Now Jesus takes the curse, I get the blessing. My, what a deal. What a deal. I can live a blessed life because he gave up his life for me. I can be free of sin because he gave up his life to carry my sin. What an amazing deal. What kind of deal is that? You don't get a better deal than that. You see, but if we don't understand it, we'll never respond to it. We'll never understand that the privilege we have of being near God, of walking in his blessing, walking in his favor, comes because of what Jesus did. He was forsaken on our behalf. The Bible tells us very clearly that he was forsaken at Calvary. So if you've ever suffered rejection, suffered loneliness, suffered the bitterness of people, uh, abandoning you, forsaking a friend, Jesus took it so you could walk in acceptance. It does not honor Jesus and what he did for us If we don't lay hold of what he did, I need to walk with an overcoming of sin. I need to walk in the blessing of God. I want to need to walk in acceptance. Why? Because that's what Jesus purchased for me. He purchased for you. You don't have to carry rejection. If you do, it's because you haven't learned how to get out of it or because the devil's holding you down. But that ain't God's plan. It ain't God's place why people get passive. They're rejected. They feel unloved. Because the devil is blinding your eyes. God has poured out passionate, passionate, extravagant love. Forgiven, blessed, accepted, welcomed, able to come into his presence. Well, what more could you want? You see, but to get it, I've got to understand it. And I've got to be grateful to Jesus for what he's done. I need to respond with gratitude. Let me just do one aspect of the cross and then I'll just finish up. One last thing. Most of the time when we think about the cross, we think about history. Oh, Easter. There we go. We have an Easter service and see Jesus get whipped. Of course, we're looking for another volunteer this year to whip. And uh, we can't get a volunteer. We might have to volunteer someone. You might know someone who could volunteer to be whipped as Jesus this way. And uh, we promise not to use real nails, but the whip will be real. Anyway, so think about this. Most times we think about the cross, we think about, oh, that was what I came to years ago. And, uh, you know, every Easter we have the cross, you know, wonderful, you know. 
that that's about all we think. But actually, the cross is the gateway to the supernatural life. It was, and it is, and it always will be. Listen, when you see Jesus in heaven, you'll notice something about him. He's still got cross marks on him. The cross was more than what Jesus did. It's actually the way God operates. Someone gives up extravagantly in order that others get blessed. That's the nature of God. The Father gave up the Son. The Son gave up his life. The Holy Spirit gave up and empowered the Son and brought all honor to the Son. They work together, you know. See, so the cross is the absolute gateway. Now, most of the time we think about the cross, we never ever think of where we stand in relationship to it. It's a real help if you were to read the story of Jesus' death on the cross several times until you're familiar with the full story. And then when you're familiar with the full story, as you begin to pray, begin to walk with Jesus through the journey to the cross. When I was in the Catholic Church, we used to have what's called the Stations of the Cross. I hated it, but however, I've come to realize behind it there really was something of value. As you know, you go around and you walk around, they have these pictures and they say these prayers. But actually, what I've learned is that you can actually walk in your imagination through the gospel story to the cross. But the way to get the best benefit out of it, the way to have fresh fire ignited in your heart is as you do it to begin to see just how fully we participate it. I want you to start with me just at the beginning when Jesus is in the garden and a man comes to him who's once walked with him and he says, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? How many times have we been like Judas who said we love the Lord and yet then betrayed our commitment to him and gone off and done other things and just abandoned the commitments we said? How many times have we been like him and betrayed him? When he came to the council and they gathered him up, of course, then immediately false accusations were raised against him. You know the story. Have you ever thought and meditated on people falsely accusing him and then begun to remember in your life when something went wrong and you began to blame God for it? Falsely accusing him of things he never did. Yes, you were there. We were all there at the cross. We were there when Judas kissed Jesus because we've done the same come to Sunday and kissed him and on Monday betrayed him we were there when the false accusations were hurled why? because we've done the same things when life went wrong and we began to blame him he was struck without a cause they began to bite, hit him and smite him and we've done the same with our words we've said things angry words spoken against the body of Christ spoken against Christians spoken against him spoken in many different ways and in doing so it's just the same as if we'd slapped him like that you ever thought that you did that and never once did he turn away and stop loving you that's the most amazing thing you thought as you think about the cross how they all mocked and belittled him and how many times before we came to Christ, how we mocked and belittled the Lord and the things of God. We were there, all right. We did exactly the same things. We have done them, and sometimes we still do them. When the soldiers viciously whipped him first on one side, then the other side, so graphically shown in that film, The Passion, were we there? Yes, that was all about our sicknesses. It was our sicknesses that put them, so it's as good as if we ourselves had hand the whip. You ever stood there and watched the soldier whipping Jesus, seeing his flesh cut open, and thought, Jesus, it was my sicknesses that did that to you. You willingly took it, and you never turned away. You never turned your back. As you followed Jesus, the same crown with thorns. The thorns always were the result of the curse that came on the ground, the crown being forth thorns. So we begin to think of our life in the various ways we've cursed and spoken negatively about God and and our lives have been cursed. Actually, we were the ones who put that crown on him. Don't think it was something someone else did 2,000 years ago. We were as present there as you are today now here. Think about him when the crowd was there. And Jesus was brought out after having been whipped and crowned with thorns. And they brought out another man, Barabbas, a murderer, a criminal who deserved to die. And they asked the crowd, who do you want? Who will you have? Jesus, who's the king of the Jews, or Barabbas? And the crowd cried, Barabbas! 
And we've done the same. We've chosen many times things which are completely contrary to the way God wanted us to walk. We chose the Barabbas of life instead of choosing the living God and walking in obedience to him. What shall we do with this Jesus? Crucify him. You say, well, I never said that. The Bible says when we've sinned, when, we, when we've been forgiven and cleansed, in, Deuter- in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, it says, then we deliberately sin after that. It's as if we crucified him afresh. We can't absolve ourselves from being there. We were there. Others may have done it physically, but spiritually we fully had a part in it. They took Jesus through the streets. The crowd laughed and belittled him. Well, of course, we say, I would never have done that. But when you hear the promises of God and when people have preached the word of God, your mind immediately has gone into overdrive to belittle the words of God and what God has provided. And then we walk away and before we know it, we've whittled it down and we don't actually believe. We know we don't believe because we're not doing what the word of God says. Then they took Jesus to the cross and they hammered the nails into him and into his hands, into his feet. Said, did I do that? Yes, because that was a part of the crucifixion. And the Bible tells us it was our sins took him to the cross. He represented us. I want you to think about it. If you will meditate and begin to start to walk through what happened at the cross, begin to identify that you were involved every step of the way. But you'll notice as you look at Jesus, this is the one thing you'll see. Never does he argue. Never does he look angry. Never does he withdraw his love. But as in the words of that song, this blood was for you. And that's what ignites fire in our heart. It's a deep sense of gratitude of what he has done and the privilege that we have. How could you not respond with love, passionate love? He doesn't call you to have a de facto relationship, I'll take it or leave it. He calls us into a committed love relationship where he says, I've given you everything. Now give me your life and let's walk together and accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. I want you just to close your eyes and bow your head right now. Let's just do it. Let's just close our eyes and bow here just another couple of minutes. One of the keyboard could just, just put some strings on. The Bible says here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us passionately and extravagantly gave his only son Jesus Christ to take every block away from us being intimate with him then it says we love him because he first loved us saints open your heart to receive the love of God let's open our hearts to receive his great love for us let it ignite a fresh passion How could we not respond passionately to such a passionate lover? It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that no man should no longer live for himself, self-centered lifestyle, but live out of relationship and in union with Christ that our life might make a difference. I want to speak to people who are older in the congregation. Think back over your life. What have you done with all the opportunities that God gave you to serve him? You don't know what time you have left. Don't focus on security. Focus on making what's left of your life passionately count for Jesus Christ involved in some way in passionately serving him and loving him repent of the hardness the indifference the self-centeredness for in the baby boomer generation from about 40 to 60 
It's a very, very selfish generation that's only concerned about ourselves and what we can get out of life. And there's a whole generation out there that's actually missed the move of God. It came and went and we didn't respond. Let's not let what remains of our life be wasted. We want to carry a fire of God. The younger ones. Don't let your life go down the drain making lots of mistakes that you don't need to make. Ecclesiastes said, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now's the time to serve him passionately. I want to just extend an invitation now to every person here that knows in your heart that you need to repent and you need to come back into fresh passion for Jesus Christ. I want you just to stand where you are. I want you just to stand. It's an acknowledgement, Jesus. You've been so passionate and extravagant in loving me. And to be honest, I've been completely indifferent. My heart is hardened by self-centeredness. My heart is hardened by things I've compromised in. I've come into agreement with things instead of actually changing and confronting them. I sense today many people need to make that decision to renew their commitment to Jesus Christ. It's a love commitment. It's a covenantal commitment. In the Old Testament and days of revival, one of the things that often happened was they renewed their covenant to be the Lord's people, to represent Him, to advance His kingdom in the earth. I believe God's speaking to many hearts today to renew your covenant with the Lord, to represent Him, to represent Him well, to stand up for what pleases Him, to live a life that pleases Him. There's others here today and you need a fresh revelation of the love of God. Perhaps it's a head concept and you've never felt what it's like when heaven opens and the love of God invades your heart. And you just weep as you feel His unconditional love. And it stirs in you a passion to be obedient to Him so you can continue to walk and receive that manifest love. If that's you today, why don't you just stand and say, Jesus, I surrender afresh to you today. Jesus, I feel you calling me. Of course, it's firstly to come into relationship with him, then to begin to grow in expressing his love. How do we express it? Passionate worship. Radical obedience, loving the people of God and building them up, carrying Christ's life into the community that souls might be saved and disciples made. You felt God speaking to you today about those things. Just stand as your commitment to Him. Father, I just thank you for people responding today. Father, I stand here today too and ask the Lord for a fresh season of grace on my life and upon the church that we might be radical in our obedience that we might win many to Christ and see them discipled not to become church people to become radical advances of the kingdom of God Father raise up a generation with a different spirit and Lord we give you all the glory just like as we finish, for every person here to stand in honor of Jesus Christ, the immense sacrifice he made at Calvary, so you and I could be free from sin, free from cursing, and totally accepted and welcomed and loved by God. Let's just stand for a moment and lift our hands to honor him right now. Jesus, we stand as your people today in honor and respect 
of the tremendous sacrifice that you made for us at Calvary. Lord, naturally, every Anzac Day, we remember people who gave their lives up in the field of duty for their country. But no one, no one has done more than you for the cause of humanity. Today, Lord, we honor you. We just worship you. We give you the praise and the glory. Church, just talk to him now. Think what you're singing. Thank you for the chance to live again. For your grace that never ends. Always I will sing your praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. 